Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Horus Heretics. I'm William. I'm Neil. And today we're going to be concluding our discussion of No No Fear by Dan Abnett. Or has what's what's your latest nickname for him now? Uh, Dan the Daddy Abnett. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, we really enjoyed part one of this, which was like a sort of giant uh, sci-fi disaster movie sort of thing. Um, yep. So, so let if, if we jump straight in, um, I I want to say that this that where it, where we start um, for this episode uh, was the most boring part of the book. But uh, I've been thinking about this, and I think this is where our the artifice introduced by this sort of pod, the, this podcast structure that we do gets really gets in the way, because this should be just sort of like a a short stop for breath in the book right but because we spend a long time reading it then talking about it and then reading it and then talking about it that sort of it, it makes it seem yeah um, worse than it is because it's a short bit it's very boring and the pacing of the book uh, from here on in gets very strange but as we were talking about with the previous book the pacing was really really nice in that it was accelerating and then we have a break uh, in between podcasts, and then in our heads, it's all messed up. Do you know but, what I mean? Yeah, no, that's a fair point. And plus, we pro- probably means we give like it just inevitably from that structure, we put undue focus on the the beginning of like part two. You know what I mean? <laughs> when when kind of like it's was well, not it's usually not entirely arbitrary in that we have sort of divided it by yeah. the parts that they're using, but it is it is arbitrary in the sense that. Certainly in this book, you know, there's not a queer part one and part two. There's multiple parts. And Well, yeah, I mean, uh, out of any book, I feel less bad about doing it too than this one because there are six or seven parts of a book. Why? There shouldn't, there shouldn't be. It's a book. Uh, but that's an old complaint. So what is what is going on in this boring book? Because I have Ugh. forgotten what it is. It's, it's your man, all the colonist. Oh. And... Um, he even in this bit, which I thought really boring, uh, he's putting in like some extra work uh, because he it says he gets paid decently, and so he's like, oh, I'll you know I'll put in some extra work, get a bit more money in my pocket, which is just completely unlike anything we've experienced in the the Empire of Man before. It's I was just uh, there's just little things thrown in here and there that I just really like, um, but here our old mate John Grammaticus. Uh, shows up again. If we were, was he in Legion? Was he the? Was that the first book? Yeah, he was a sort of um, Doctor Who type figure. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, (laughs) Doctor Who. That's a very good point. Um, He is a a logo kind, so he can uh, understand any language that's spoken to him. That's his magic power, and he's been genetically engineered to be a perpetual, which is to say, the same as the Emperor of Man can't be killed he'll just be reborn in some way and it's um ongoing so he visits this guy all the colonist yeah and says you're one of us you can't just you know you're important because you're a perpetual you can help you've got to you know do some fucking work and you can't just be sitting here being some nobody colonist um and all, all didn't want any of that. He was just wanting a quiet life. And um, John grants him 
a vision, another another vision. And uh, it's of Horus killing Sanguinius and Terra being on fire. And then uh, all actually has a bit of a conversation with Horus. And it ends up all just going like, well, we need to fucking go. Um, and then he snaps too, but finds, you know, Calf in the in the throes of being destroyed and seems to grab like a bunch of hangers on and leads them on a bit of a trek. Now we can kind of forget about them till the very end. Yeah. Um, but that was, I was just, uh, that left a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. Uh, after such a great start. I was like, right. Well, yeah, that storyline, such as it is, we don't really need to discuss it that much because I think it's essentially a setup for something in a later book uh, yeah. to come, right? But I, I found that just really strange um, as, well, yeah, as I say, we're putting undue influence on this being the opening of part two, but like just in this section, um, really strange that suddenly this guy was all a sort of immortal being caught up with John Grammaticus and everything. And it just was like, and I, I like, I, before I sort of properly got into reading the, the, the you know, the second part of the book, I'd like read this bit and I'm sure I'd like, I'd like read it just before I went to bed or something and then like, <laughs> When I woke up, I got sort of mixed up with my dreams, and I was a bit like, "Hold on, does that actually, did that actually happen?" You know, because like it, <laughs> it was really strange. Like it, it just, it, there was no, as far as I'm aware, no reference whatsoever to him having that to being one of them yeah. in the first half, and and it was just really, um, I found it strange that he was just, he was just this salt of the earth kind of ex. Uh, soldier now a farmer and and now he's just like oh no he's actually a sort of time and galaxy hopping yeah but doesn't it sort of isn't it a trope that could appear in action movies because that's what you you were uh, this that was your analogy that you used last time was like this is a big big old action movie but isn't it isn't there like characters that you could point to that are just like trying to live a normal life, trying to live a normal life, or everything seems to sort of be sort of pointed towards drawing them into the action in some way, and they always turn away until something really bad happens, like their dog is killed or something like that. And then that draws them back in, and you see, oh, shit, they're actually uh, a monumental killing machine. Yeah, yeah, no, there there is a trope to that, and it's sort of this is just reminding me of like I don't know if you ever read a book by David Gemmell. Um, uh, I I remember many many covers of David Gemmell books. Being, they they always had like axes on them or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Well, there's one there's one that I read. Um, I think I read like one or two that my friends lent to me. Like uh, my friend lent to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, never ago. bought one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, man, no, why would I lie? Like, I'm on a fucking podcast about the horse Um But, uh, and like, so I only have these to go by, but he was, they were saying, yeah, basically, this, the main characters are the same every time. They're like a, an old, weary warrior who's like yeah. living alone in the mountains, having hung up his sword, but then, you know. <laughs> someone comes to say, you know, like, the village is really in great trouble, and, if, and you know, reluctantly, yeah. he comes down and slays all the bad guys for yeah. the rest of the book. And um, <laughs> under, under, He just, like, goes to underneath his bed and pulls out the biggest sword you have ever seen in your life. <laughs> yeah. and, and he just brings it down and defends, like, the women folk 
or something like that. Yeah. But like, yeah, you're right. That is a total trope. But I just, I found it weird just the way it was written to him. There was no, there was no reference as far as I'm aware to that, to him. No, I, I can't remember that either. That there was anything more to him than just being an ex-soldier. I thought that was his whole storyline was going to just be that like, he was acting as a farmer, but like he had, you know, military capability that he, you know, that he basically got into the fight. I thought that was going to be his whole thing, and and I was yeah. a bit blindsided by the whole John Grammaticus thing. But we don't need to worry about it too much. We've probably already gone mm. into far too much detail. But to... <laughs> uh, can I just say that I, I had a moment of shame since the last podcast as well. Um, uh, what with like lockdown and stuff, it's been it's been boring. And uh, my partner like sorted out a, a Zoom call with some of her friends, and I hadn't met them before. And um, so we were just talking, and one of them was like, "So you, you do a podcast?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah we do a podcast." <laughs> blah, blah 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 blah. And um, you read Warhammer books, and I was like, "Well, uh, um, I mean, yeah, but not not just Warhammer books. Like I read other books." <laughs> I was just like, I was just embarrassing myself by just going like, "Well, I mean, it's just there's a lot to learn from, and they're, they're really good." But I mean, I do. Try to I've got it. other strings to my bows. You're like, yeah, yeah, but we're we're taking a sideways glance at them. You know, it's not <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, and I should just have been like, yeah, I do. They're 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 really good, um, but I did feel the need to be like, I do read them and and other things as well. Do you want to talk about um, uh, like Shakespeare or anything? <laughs> um, but anyway, anyway, where are we now? Let's let's just. Yeah, move on from that and get right. into the bloodshed. So, well, no, I've got a bit of an issue here, and I have a few good notes, but I'm not really sure where they fit in. But they're early on, so I'll just I'll just get into them. Um, so, there's some more chat about the. I mean, as we've discussed before, pretty much all the Primarchs seem to be authors in some <laughs> to some degree, um, and there's some stuff about that. Of, and like Lorgar comes across as you know probably of a fairly prof- prolific bunch he's he might be the most prolific of them all oh get, yes gets many copies made but he, he he comes across as like a kind of garth merengue type author or something <laughs> like that in that he never stops pumping out the volume you know he just he's always like re-editing and um it's like uh, the, the book of lorgar is in like ten thousand volumes or maybe more yeah it's by, being added to over and over and over and you just think oh if, if somebody needs an editor it's Lorgar <laughs> you know? yeah so the book of Lorgar fills an entire data stack and has been transcribed by hand into 9,752 volumes <laughs> the, the <laughs> number increases regularly um, Corferon has personally gathered a 10,000 strong staff of rubricators and scribes to copy the book and to multiply those copies <laughs> oh god like it just makes you it just it's actually a good representation. Like he is something like an L. Ron Hubbard figure, <laughs> in that he just thought everything he wrote was vitally important, <laughs> and and so all of that turgid nonsense that he wrote is like poured over by the Scientologists. Yeah. So what the story really becomes there, for the most part, is like some of these, some of the various strands we talked about. We didn't even talk about all the strands in. No first part like but we'll, we'll probably mention most of them here because they kind of coalesce into for the most part into um you know like characters sort of come together and become one part of the story um so we've got ventanus mm. yeah um down on uh 
Kalth, and they're kind of trying to, you know, muster up a bit of resistance, and they're they're sort of taking a stand at this uh, palace. They've gone there because it has like the only data engine. It's a bit like Battlestar Galactica. There's like a an unnetworked data engine or something down there, so it won't have been infected by the the malicious code. And they've met up with Torin, the person who was like the Mechanicus um, love interest of of Hest, who was controlling the uh, orbital defenses and stuff. And, and they put together a little fighting force and hideout, as you say, in that in that palace. Yeah. Um, she, so she was kind of like the second. Well, I don't know if second in command even, or just like yeah. uh, she was the same type of role as Hest. So she takes over. She's trying to take over such as she can at this point because it's all been fucked up. Like the the sort of control of the planets. Um, well, they're trying to get the Vox going again, basically. Yeah, that that just seems to be at at the start of the book. They're not even sure what they can do. They just know that there is a computer there and it will help. And like they're being attacked uh, and trying to defend this palace, which, as you say, is not military installation. They're just trying to make do while Torin, who is this uh, server, that's what she's called. Um, and she sort of spends a bit of time and gets this data engine up and running. And while it can't do Vox just yet, she finds out that it definitely will not be powerful enough to you know, take over the orbital defenses, but she can use it to get like um, sort of battlefield, yeah, like pull together uh, all of, all of, all of these sources of, of data from all over the the planet and and orbit and stuff, and just to get a sort of three dimensional view of the battlefield, just to show the ultramarines how truly fucked they actually are. Well, yeah, because they're all about the you know the info and the planning and yeah. stuff, and so this allows them to do a bit of that. Um, it's actually more like Hest is her love interest, really, because you know um, she becomes the main character, really, of true, that true. of that bit. And then like there's so, there is some good little. It's quite a good little bit actually later where like it's I think it's Ventanas is with her and he's like um, you know saying basically like she's talking about Hest and he's like oh you cared for him and like she's like yeah and and he reflects that, like oh this is basically you know as close as someone in the Mechanicum could get to being like husband and wife. There is, yeah, there, there is like uh, some little moments of like sort of wistful recollections of, of you know, past lives and realisation of things lost uh, through the transformation into being a space marine. Um, yeah. And that's really good. Uh, obviously, I would like more of that, but I think it's it's wrong to expect more of that in books about slaughtering aliens. You know, that, that, that's not what they're for. Well, yeah. Let's let's get back to let's get back let's get back <laughs> let's to what these books to, are, to are for. So when um, when Ventanis is you know around about this time and he's sort of surveying the scenes of carnage, and there's a line where it said there are bodies everywhere, civilians, army, and far too many ultramarines for Ventanis to be even slightly sanguine about. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I I sort of envision Celaton coming up to him or something and just going, mate, how, how are you doing? He's like, I can't even manage to be slightly sanguine about this. <laughs> That's, like the, 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 le- the level of anger and hatred is, is only described by relation to this, the level of sanguinity amongst <laughs> all these people. 
<laughs> such a weird construction of a sentence, or just a very weird sentence to say. Yeah, no, it's it's sort of a, a beautifully written comic line. I I, I did uh, write that down myself. <laughs> um, um, so that that's that that's one of the main threads uh, that goes uh, that sort of intertwines. The other one is uh, back up on the ship where the there was a huge blood explosion, and the main bridge was sort of vented to space. Chapter Master Gage is still alive, but he sort of comes to, and he's just that uh, he doesn't know what's going on. He just knows that Gilliman is gone. They don't know what's happened to him, and uh, Enid Thiel is still around. He was the guy who was uh, marked for censure, and uh, we were never told. I, I I think I probably forgot that we were never told what he was marked for censure for. Anyway, Thiel comes and saves Gage, and uh, he's got like this th- his own little ragtag crew um, that he's armed with weapons from Gilliman's private stock. So they all have, you know, these like bespoke uh, singular weapons, which must have been must have looked an absolute picture. And we learn that Thiel was actually actually censured for, and this is very lucky, um, <laughs> for running theoreticals on the fighting of space marines. Yeah, yeah, and I think we should probably. I don't know if we've really talked about the way that ultramarines talk to each other. Is they'll oh. often. <laughs> oh, I was hoping we were. It's so stupid and so <laughs> tedious. Let's go for it. They will often start a sentence by saying either they'll say theoretical or practical, and then they'll say the theoretical or practical thing as they see it, and it's it's unnecessary. Yeah, um, it's like th- theoretical is like stating the problem almost. Practical is the action that yeah. comes from it. And yeah, it's oh, it's boring. Oh, <laughs> I hate it. Um, but on right, Theo turns out to be even though he wasn't like that senior, was he? But he he no. because of this PhD on killing space marines, <laughs> they got in trouble for whatever it was. He um he is really good <laughs> when this situation kicks yeah. off, and he's like he's just gets right into the action and has good ideas and sort of becomes a leader pretty quickly. Um, yeah. I, there's, at this stage, I've got a few things written down that I want to bring up because I mentioned last last time that I was really keen for there to be a good old monster. Why? Why? There is an absolute fucking blinder here as, alongside some superb lines. Um, as Thiel and Gage and, you know, the, these other members of crew come together, start making plans they get attacked by this huge monster can i I, sorry neil i think this is going to be a good discussion so can i just make a slightly different point before we get into it because otherwise i might forget yeah so it's just like there's a little throwaway mention here which i just which really caught my eye and got me interested um so on the ship i think it's on the ship they're talking about um yeah there's gathering people together so it's all bits and pieces of you know squads that have been uh, had casualties and things like that and a fighting talks about a fighting party appears moving urgently urgently down the corridor it says there are several ultramarines but it's also composed of army troopers and navy personnel including at least one abhuman stoker and i'm like who the fuck mm. are the abhuman stokers i really want to know more <laughs> about them like you know i mean yeah. we we get told all about the sort of transhumanity of the space marines and other ways in which you know people have sought to sort of transcend their human um, roots in this setting 
and on the abhuman stokers are just relegated to a bit of background detail but i'm like they sound fucking interesting um anyhow are the, do the engines require stoking it would seem so fucking hell Jesus by, by the abhuman stokers um <laughs> who I, I i'm sure they were mentioned in the first half but i, I didn't think to make a note of it but anyway we'll come back to them when we learn more but uh, sorry onto the monsters because there's good monster yeah. shit yeah so they're attacked and the monster starts laying a bite and he hasn't been described and there is a, a fabulous line uh curso is attacked and um he screams but then and i'll quote curso is done screaming a lack of skull has silenced him <laughs> <laughs> Very, very good. <laughs> um, that's superb. Well done, Dan. Appreciate that line. Anyway, so a description of this monster. This is where all Black Library authors get to really sort of kick their shoes off and, and stretch their legs a bit. Picture this if you can. You won't be able to, but try it. The monster is a 30-ton snake with hundreds of vestigial hooves feathers and a beak but it's not actually one snake it's a hundred separate snakes sharing a single beak it's see uh, right sorry carry on I'm no no find, no go ahead i'm finding my notes because i mean well, my main note about this was uh best snake monster yet question mark because you know we've had quite a lot of <laughs> a lot of snake based monsters right oh yeah so it's, there's like secondary the snake best, bodies it's, it's form great. a beard um yeah. A frill under the chain of the beak. They rye like tentacles, like pseudopods. The demon is a hundred giant snakes fused into one titanic abomination, sharing one beaked head. Um, <laughs> You're absolutely forgetting about the hooves. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. There's some good stuff here. I'm like, um, I think some a couple of these that I noted are from just before the appearance of the snake monster, but um, there's some real Hieronymus Bosch vibes about <laughs> this thing of like, a demon thing lunges with teeth, rotten, broken, broken pegs of teeth all the way around its yawning mouth, which is big enough to swallow him whole. Its legs are back jointed with bird's feet. And that one in particular, I thought, like, yeah, had heavy Hieronymus Bosch vibes. Um, but uh, uh, a bunch of flowers in his arse as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is also um, a thing made of hair and arachnoid limbs and antlers. <laughs> scuttling out of the shadows um so yeah i mean there's some pretty wild creatures here it was good it was so the plan of these folks is to really get to the auxiliary bridge and you know separate the saucer section basically is what they're going to do and they take this bridge and they immediately get a vox from the surface and it's the you know it's the 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 fighters that we've just talked about it's old celaton and vitanis and stuff there are a few more people mentioned along the way. There is like um, Ankaiser. He's um, that's a, a name I don't think we mentioned last time. Didn't seem very important, and is not very important in this one either. But uh, he's like leading uh, a bunch of troops, and he's just like another sort of leader on the surface, just trying to maintain a bit of order and, and uh, carve a fighting force out of the the mess that they have. And we, there's also uh, Telemachus and Lamiad. Uh, Telemachus is like a very young... Um, what Dreadnought. Do you call Dreadnought. Dreadnought. And uh, like it, it, the, he's given a bit of time uh, to, to show that he is actually scared. In this book, No, No Fear, he does feel fear. 
uh, and he was told that he might feel that and because he used to be a space marine he's ex- extremely disturbed by that I, and yeah i liked Tally Metris. not that he was a big part of the book but um because he basically appeared in like one bit in the first half he appears in one bit here apart from when he turns up at the end and starts like wasting word bearers with his cannons and shit it's the first time any dreadnought is given any sort of internal life i i mean generally i quite i, I tend to quite like the sort of roboty like cyborgy type of characters in, in these books I, I i seem to quite like them so there yes so the uh, this is the first conjoining of these two uh story arcs ventanis um uh, speaks with the chapter master on the ship and they just confirm what they've been doing that the data engine on the ground ground doesn't have the option to retake the defense grid but you know we're we're feeding you the information that you that we have so that you can like you know make some plans or whatever and then um Celaton Vitanis are shown to a captured word bearer called Zir um uh, a bit of back and forth bit of banter um and they execute him and there's a demon inside of him yeah well um, Solas does it in this does it in a rage basically because the guy's like yeah. and it's our old mate Samus again yeah um from the first book it's quite. I mean, the way he opened up as a demon is, is he opened um, from the waist like a bloody flower. He's still laughing. Some, he's still somehow laughing. New paragraph. Then he turns inside out. New paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> a cannon shoots Samus and has no effect on him. So uh, Samus walks over and just crumples the uh, tank in his mouth. Takes a bite out of it. So Ventanis thinks. I think I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and stab this geezer in the head. <laughs> <laughs> which which um, turns out, uh, like, it, there's a, a, quite a long description of, like, um, Ventanis, like, um, jumping over things and vaulting onto a roof and running across and, like, going sideways so that he's coming at him from the back and then jumps at him. And only then does he realize he doesn't have a sword. He so he's got nothing to stab him with apart from this, like the ritual Athian that all the word bearers are carrying. And he jumps at Samus and stabs him in the head. Instantly, he explodes. Yeah. Literally. Um, yes. This, we haven't really talked about the fact that they defended this palace in a big kind of battle. Um, they've been defending the palace, uh, Ventanis and all that, and and the, the word bearers have been coming. This is like because this guy's sort of prisoner. He was the leader after the battle, and he gave himself up. Most of them just like sort of fought to the death or whatever. We, we go back up into space at this point, I think, and Phil is um, like given a kill team, and he goes out into into space because there the the capital ship that they're on is being uh, boarded by. Uh, word bearers because they they are trying to keep ships for themselves they don't want to just dis- just to destroy everything they want to further humiliate the ultramarines by stealing their ships and using them for their own you know dark purposes so um they've pulled up a few smaller ships and are like uh, hacking through the hull of uh, this uh, ca- the space marine capital ship and um you know digging through it and so Thiel goes out into space with jump packs and or uh, harnesses or void harnesses, I think they're called, and you know are killing a few here and there uh, of the word bearers, and uh, they get attacked by a, a much bigger word bearer 
uh, squad and then they rediscover Gilliman who is like doesn't have a void suit he's just there uh, can breathe well can't breathe but doesn't need to because he's a Primarch and he just like slays a few they go back on board and uh, Gilliman's pretty fucking angry he says that you know these are warp demons that um, the Edict of Nikea has disarmed them of the best weapons they would have at fighting uh, warp monsters and he says it's almost like it was planned which is a nice sort of um, extra level of complexity to think into that like who who else is involved in this massive uh, betrayal and yeah. it, you know it's it's making them all sort of reevaluate every decision that's been made before them as it would and then there's a, a line a terrible line um and I, I say this just because there was a really bad line in the last bit of the book and it just sort of stands out because all the rest is written so well um it says gilliman breaks the big silence which <laughs> is terrible that's like dan brown level writing it's awful <laughs> yeah but, sorry sorry well i just want to say that they then they realize that the sun in the the, the solar system is being attacked by the defense grid uh the defense grid has basically opened up everything it has and is just blasting the shit out of the sun <laughs> yeah so it, yeah just like that fight scene you're talking about out on the sort of hull of the ship that was very like i think you referenced this earlier on if i'm not mistaken but it was very like star trek first contact um when they were like you know the the the, the word bearers are trying to like fuck up the ship somehow and they're uh, mm-hmm. going out as a small squad to kind of fight them but then like, but also what occurs to me is what has Gilliman just been floating about outside yeah. the ship for for ages for hours basically um pretty yeah, much i think yeah. i don't think they really go into a whole lot of detail about yeah and like this the story from this point the sort of the sort of structure of the kind of climactic part of the story is all sort of structured around a, a MacGuffin that sort of emerges at this point, which is like, <laughs> which is like Torin when she's been working away on you know on the all the computer network stuff is like, um, oh I found this um, kill code that uh, that Hest hid away uh, to fight the that he somehow managed to do and hide away in the heat of the moment when this scrap code was coming in. But not tell anyone about, and yep. hide in this specific place, and you couldn't activate it. Fuck knows. I don't know. Anyway, the long and, and it's and it's nearby, and we just need to get it. The long and short of it is, there's a special thing they needed to win the, all the fighting that was in a particular place. But they, so they needed to take this place, but they also needed the first area of the attack is a bit that the space. Uh, the the word beaters are not necessarily going to recognise as a place of strategic importance, so they get a little bit of a kind of surprise attack in there. But you know, when they yeah. see them moving in such force, they know there's something going on. It's important about it. So, so uh, yeah, that's Ventanas and all them sort of draw together as big a force. Yeah, as they can. and that's when uh, they join up with uh, Telemachus and um, Anheuser. Yeah, Torin is with them as well, and so they're trying to get her to sort of. Um, get into the system or whatever and meanwhile um, so they're getting they're getting their communications back and getting their sort of systems back and up on the, the ship with uh, Gilliman and all that they're like uh, right what's our best plan here so they kind of figure out what they should do with the ship and they basically come to the conclusion that they should 
send in like a team by teleport right into this place where Corferon is and um, just take control. And Gilliman's like, yeah, I'm, I'm weeding it. Um, and they, they so, so... Isn't it like Gage goes, you will not. And uh, Gilliman just goes, you shut your mouth. I'm going. <laughs> and it's like, I fucking will. Um, yeah. Um, and they, uh, they go in and they're quite happy because only four of them get like killed by the teleportation process, which is quite Good a success. Um, they, and like these people will get like merged with the walls and shit like that. And um, yeah. one uh, gets turned into like jam <laughs> and spread over a lo- a large area. That's what it's a, <laughs> so then they so yeah they get in there um and they sort of they're a couple of floors away from Corferon or, or and the controls or whatever so they storm in uh Corfer, they get there um and Corferon sort of uses some warp powers to sort of overcome Gilliman temporarily he has a knife right at him and then Gilliman yeah, just uses, like 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 warp lasers on him and just he, like yeah, just almost melts him and then cuts his throat. Yeah, at which point Gilliman then just uh, punches into Corferon's chest and rips out one of his hearts. But he sort of skulks away, so he's not like fully dead. His troops kind of carry him off. Um, so, so basically they take control of that and then Ventanus's force, they achieve the same. Although, you know, they're still under heavy pressure. Meanwhile, there's a kind of ritual going on some part of the planet where Erebus is involved. You know, it's your yeah. usual kind of, you know, candles and a pentagram shape type of deal. Uh, well, it's not actually a pentagram shape, but you know what I mean. It's that kind of um, yeah. ritualistic thing. And so there, I, I mean, maybe I didn't read it properly or it wasn't entirely clear, but there's some kind of thing with like blowing up the sun was an integral part of it, taking over the whole planet. Erebus wasn't really bothered that like, the Ultramarines were making a comeback because he was like, right, we've done what we came here to do, which was this ritual. Which, and I, I like this sort of confused me a bit in terms of the timelines or surprised me, but this was like them creating the big warp storm that fucks up everyone else throughout basically all of these books that we've read. And it like messes up yeah. all the travel and confusion and stuff like that through the warp. Uh, and sorry, like communication through the warp. Um, yeah, they, they, they do manage to. Um get to the kill code or whatever it is and deploy that which cleans up the scrap code from uh, the orbital defences so that they can take it over and then they use that to bombard the word bearer troops and word bearer ships and all that and so like now the tables have turned and the word bearers are being fucked up and so yeah. they turn their tails and run and Corferon uh, and uh, the, the guy Ture uh, also run Chures had half his face cut off um, and so they run and Gilliman says we need to get after them yeah. and so they, they're just like you know mad scramble this place is done for um, we'll evacuate everyone we can but the the damage is done the sun's going to explode um, the people on the surface uh, who can't be uh, evacuated? They have to like live in the tunnels and stuff underneath. And then there's like a bit of that's really that's really the end of it. We're, we're given a few sort of prologues, so just some short uh, little images of what happens next. That Ventanus is still on the planet, 
and leads uh, like people in the tunnels um, and obviously some survive because it cuts to even later and they're on Colchis, the word bearer home planet and they're destroying it they're getting ready to um, send cyc- cyclonic torpedoes is that what they are the the kind of planet killer uh, torpedoes but he's on the planet and like plants a uh, the standard that of the ultramarines that he brought from Kalth um, and that's really it but that you know that's kind of the mark of Kalth is still running because uh, for as long as there is still a word bearer uh, th- this timer will continue to run as if like you know there is a debt to be paid yeah yeah and um yeah and it talks a bit about how between like the time of this story and that little epilogue bit um how uh yeah when they they'd gone into the sort of underground arcologies and stuff and, and but like word bearers had probably gone in there for shelter as well someone had said and then it did reference that it had been like an underground war yeah. that they'd been fighting um, in the intervening time. So, so yeah, that's that's pretty much um, where the story wraps up. And, uh, and yeah, like, there was a lot of fun to be had in this half of the book, but it didn't, to me, it didn't match up to the, the first half. It sort of, um, despite sort of theoretically getting more into the sort of full-on battle and, and action, it felt like it, felt like it lost its momentum a little bit to me. Like, the, the first half was really, you know, just um, despite all these disparate storylines, it really had the sort of driving um, momentum. And this um, just turned into a bit of a kind of, for the most part, some of it was, was good, but it was kind of a fairly, like, by the numbers, let's do the obligatory fight scenes kind of yeah. um, thing. And then it went at the end, I feel a bit sort of disappointed in the way we ended the discussion of the of the book, but that that is how the book ended. It sort of went like, really, that's it, that, uh, that's it. And also, the MacGuffin, as you said, it was it, it was just too big. Uh, it was you know it was like, um, hey, imagine something that would allow us to win. Well, there is that thing, and it's not far. Well, yeah. Should, yeah. should we go and get it? It was yeah. just too sort of. Uh, too perfect. Well, that was like the second half of the story. It was like it was just a bit piecemeal and like it didn't, they didn't quite, or like you didn't quite know really what to do with it. You know, what I mean, kind of knew like, yeah. right, I've got another, I've got to do another two hundred pages, which I've got to have, you know, six to eight fights, big fights in them. <laughs> um, so how I'm gonna, how I'm gonna fill this out? And like, I've got to get to the certain point. But like, essentially, like the story that comes out of this book, which is actually like it's a pretty significant one in in the whole. Um, the whole uh, saga, but it was like essentially told in the first half, like the or you could have you could all the extra stuff that needed to be said in this half, you could have worked it into a story that was essentially just structured like the first half, you know, which was all yeah. around this big disaster rather than um, um, you know sort of leading up to this point, and then you could have had a bit at the end where that you know the fight back begins. They make way you hear about this ritual, you know, and that sort of thing. But like, it was just a bit drawn out, and it was it was fine. It was like probably above average, like just of the very formulaic type of stuff that's in these books. But um, uh, it just didn't match up to the first half for for me anyway. Yeah, I think 
we were we were pretty close last time to say that um that was our first that was our favorite piece of stuff that we'd read i i think i'm not sure we said that or not but it was close yeah. this was disappointing after that yeah it, well, just i mean the last the first bit was like just it was a really breezy read and this one was a bit more of a chore i found you know what i mean like just that was my feeling totally. reading it. it was just a bit uh, totally totally and as you say not bad uh it's still in places good um but just didn't match up to what I, I i felt about the first bit but i think overall i would say definitely one of the the top books in the the series that we've read so far by yeah sure. and it's quite like um as i've as i've said with some some previous books that i had on, on the kindle version i have of this it was like um i don't know if it's a subsequent edition but it had a little epilogue at the end of it did you have that like uh, no just so it's like a little bit of just the author oh i might have i i didn't read it but like um it wasn't just describing the process of writing the book and stuff and there's just some it was quite interesting about um just various things like so they're sort of saying how you know authors kind of have their particular areas that they usually specialize in and he was like you know ultramarines not normally would be graham mcneil but like when they were having like an author's meeting or whatever he you know graham mcneil was super busy so like he took it on and he enjoyed it and stuff and like but just i thought it was interesting because you know we often talk about how sometimes these books sort of seem rushed and could do with a bit more polish and editing and stuff and like that was just a bit of an insight into like mm-hmm. you know just like that's true them like <laughs> the, yeah that is true i mean um but uh and then there was also like stuff he was talking about he was sort of talking a bit about how this book was partly a reaction to like um he said he sort of was saying that he like some people would criticize his prospero burns book which presumably was the last one he did in the series um, mm-hmm. before this one and like for being too like uh, not action actiony enough basically you know not having enough um fighting so he was like he was a, saying a bit like this book was his like well you want action i'll give you fucking action sort <laughs> of book um uh but yeah it was kind of it's kind of interesting i do find it quite interesting to read these little uh these little uh yeah i also like to think that um authors write books as like diss tracks or something you know just like <laughs> you know what well, fuck you fuck you people prospero was, was a fucking good book you want action i'm gonna i'm gonna make everything in space explode at once <laughs> fuck you all you know <laughs> yeah good on him as well good on him for that anyway so um well done top marks um yeah <laughs> Uh, we've been giving all of these books marks and this one gets near top marks um, and you can find those marks in the same place as we always put them um, next book uh, up is The Primarchs uh, which is an anthology um, edited by Christian Dunn so um, we will be back with that um, Will um I don't know whether you want to say it or not, but um, your game's finished and it's ready to go out, right? <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> I promised I would start talking about the game last time, but um, you brought it up again. So, no, the game, all I will say is the game is not finished as of as this goes to press. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, the Primarchs, kind of looking forward to that. I, I have the feeling it's going to be either really good or really bad. 
Um, I mean, will it be? It's short stories about all the different primarchs. Is that is that it? I, so no, I know I, for. I don't think it's about all the different primarchs, but yeah, some some, some primarchs, some so, interesting tales. So we'll see. Cool, cool. cool. Well, uh, that all sounds very exciting. So um, until then, hope everyone keeps safe, and we will see you soon. See you then. Bye.